First of all, the thing that is written, published in 1906, I think it's right, isn't it? Seven. Seven. And so it's set 20 years earlier, but um, as Charlotte Moore said, uh, anyone who watches it now, um, suicide bombers, counter-terrorism, radicalization, it's all there. Um, we'll start with Tony. It, it's, I mean, that is one of the attractions of this story, clearly, is the parallels. Yeah, I mean, the contemporaneity of it is just, mm. uh, you know, just compelling, but um, you know, and, and even <clears throat> the grooming of Stevie is sort of redolent of the way that you know vulnerable young people are kind of co-opted to go off to Syria, either online or or in some other way. But you know, the, the, the Verloc grooming of, of Stevie is um, it's probably the most chilling, one of the most chilling things about it, mm -hmm. I think. But you know, the, the heart of it is, is that it's a you know, apart from all the political. Pertinent politically, it's it's the fact that it's it's a ultimately it's a uh, domestic tragedy. Mm. It's sort of heartbreaking because of Winnie's hope that she's creating a new family with through Verloc and Stevie's relationship, and it's anything but. Well, Toby, your um, CV also includes John Le Carre, and uh, Conrad was a great influence on Le Carre, and you can really see that the so many Le Carre characters as well. The way he's pulled in three directions, he's a double agent, but sort of a triple agent because, as Tony says of the domestic pressure as well. Yes, it's very, I, I was very aware, I talk, talk, Charles and I talked a lot about just the sheer, just acting pressure and the irony of a character, you know, the, the title being agents, as if he's got agency, but he doesn't seem to have any agency at all. He seems to be completely uh, at the whim of everyone else. At times, you know, the anxiety as an actor is, are you doing enough? You know, but in a way, a, a lot of the, the, the other, the story is happening around him. He, he is reactive. I mean, it, it, it's. Is this enough of an answer yet, Mark? Yeah, of course. Go on. Yeah. Uh, that, that, yeah. uh, so I, I suppose that's the, that's the challenge: mm. is to trust that it's being the, the pressures will be read. You know, well, I, I, I'm, I'm acting reaction to the pressure. Uh, Vicky, I did um, one of these ones where um, the uh, actress on the stage wasn't in the first episode, so people were surprised that she was there. Now you are in this, but she, her story gets more and more. Um, <laughs> important as it goes on in two and three winners story yeah i think we can see in the first act that she's you know she's a peaceful soul and we can see that the sort of relationship between her and verloc is a convenience and we, we can read all that quite quickly but yeah it's quite clearly gets very dark it says that um, fantastic line to the mother about we have a real um relationship which is all sorts of backstory but clearly they have um they have a sexual yeah, connection. and also she, do, you know, she doesn't want to lose a good thing. It's mm. like what he gives her is what she can give to Stevie, and that ultimately is the most important thing to her is what what she can do for Stevie and, and make sure he's he's got a happy life and he provides that. And Charles, when you saw because well, one of the things that leaps off the screen is those uh, clearly those locations because you have the real Greenwich Observatory, mm. Trafalgar Square, and so on. Um, is that just a gamble? I mean, you don't know when you start if you're going to be able to get them, do you? I was absolutely convinced we'd get them. We had <laughs> and we were very lucky. We filmed entirely in, in Soho, which is very rare nowadays. It was the, the northernmost tip of Soho called Edinburgh. But uh, <laughs> we, did, we did as much as we could in three days in London. And then we're in Glasgow and Edinburgh. Mm. And uh, yeah, I think, I think if, you, if you put some scenes in London on screen, you can a lot of people on a lot of other scenes. Yeah. And also being in Glasgow and Edinburgh, using locations that are not that familiar, 
So, for example, the Botanic Gardens in Glasgow are absolutely beautiful glass houses that I hadn't seen before, and I just love being able to use them, Kelvin Grove, as a station. So when you, when you wrote it again, you just assumed that you could, would be able to have the locations or the closest to them. Um, Do you think about yeah. that at all, about how mm. the poor producer and director... No, you definitely don't, because <laughs> you don't worry about the money, you don't worry about the, the, the uh, budgets, and you don't worry about the locations until until you get a green light, and then they say, oh, we've got to worry about this now. So, um, But, yeah, no, I think, you you, you know, you, you, um, you just want the story to be as expansive, and, and especially with this, because you're embracing it as a thriller, ultimately, <clears throat> that it, it, it needs to go at a lick, and it needs to um, um, feel that it's it's got this kinetic forward energy and you you know you don't you, you if, and it, if that means an accumulation of scenes and stuff that's that's just the way you know that's just symptomatic of what you've tried to write although one of the um, striking things is where you suddenly have those wide shots of the observatory or the trafalgar square famously in some um period uh, dramas now they just have to stay on the faces of the actors or inside because if they go wide, we're going to see buses and um, satellite dishes and so on. It's very expensive, isn't it, to uh, dress? No. Period. It's, no, it's, because it's, you get up very early on a Sunday morning with a <laughs> minibus of extras. In summer. At 7.30, and you bundle them out, and in 15 minutes you've got your shot in Trafalgar Square, and he's, you just walk through Trafalgar Square. <laughs> <laughs> and then you just uh, erase the Goya exhibition posters on the National <laughs> Gallery. <laughs> Um, because that's the thing, digital, you can, you can deal, do all that now. You can just well, you can take do a lot off, of it, yeah. yeah. You can do a lot of it, but yeah. you don't go in wanting to make a digital production. It should be invisible. There's a lot of uh, digital shots in the show, particularly later in episode three, but you're hoping that it's a real grounded drama. And when you were asked to do this, so you, um, Andrew Davis, uh, he, he apparently drives around with the um, audio book on to try to get it into his head, but what, did you sit down with the 400 pages of Conrad? How do you approach it? Um, well, you read the book a lot, and then you, you, you get to a great moment when you throw the book away. You know, I think when you write the first draft, you kind of write you, the script's there and the book's there, and then the book gets pushed further and further away, and then, then you can chuck it, and then you'll just think about the screenplay and how it relates to the last draft of the script you wrote, rather than how faithful are we being to the book, or what do I need to, you know. And I, I think, you know, I've been... Compared to other adaptations I've done, I think I've been I've taken liberties mm. with this. The, the book has a long flashback in the middle, hasn't it? As I remember. Well, the trouble with the book is the, the trouble with it is just the fact of the book is is that um, there are lots of POVs. Nothing's you, you know the the professor and and um, and Verloc don't actually meet in the book. You, you, that, that's not an encounter that you ever see. You're, that's only reported third hand by by the professor to Ossipon. And likewise, you know, there's one encounter between the professor and he, Stephen Graham's character. So you're having to pull out, obviously, the fact that it's a non-linear. I was going to say because I watched for the this second, is very linear. Yeah. You know. Well, I watched it for the second time um, just now, and I noticed that there's that spine of one-on-one. I mean, it's almost like a mm. game of consequences, mm. um, isn't it? Because the Verloc and the professor meet, and then the professor meets the detective, then the detective meets Verloc. So you've given it the spine of those one-on-one mm. um, confrontations or discussions. Yeah, I think just to, just to keep the point of view, the energy of it, it, it you know, you, there have to be consequences. Mm. It, need, it needs a kinetic approach, and, and you have to, you know, you have to kind of be aware that um, it's, 
it's got to be constantly moving forward because what you, what I probably ultimately done right at the beginning was, was to say, okay, I've got to, I'm, like I said before, I'm going to embrace it as a thriller. Therefore, mm. all things lead from from that until we, we get probably into the second ep and then the third, where where the domestic tragedy becomes mm. much more felt. And as I remember, in the Conrad, we don't know it's Russia, do we? It's an unnamed no, country. No, it isn't. Beyond. No, but we thought, well, why not? <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and yeah, so you know. <laughs> The Russians flexing their muscles in London's pretty contemporary too, I think. And it's, um, Toby and Vicky, it, it's claimed that uh, in TV producers, controllers, they talk about whether the character is sympathetic or... Um, do you, uh, as an actor, do you think about, worry about that at all? Because he's quite interested in Verloc because he's in some ways sympathetic, but in another way, in, in other ways, he's quite a dark figure. The only way I can really talk about that, I, um, I, I don't know that I ever, you know, there is a sort of sympathy you feel because you're going to have to do the things he does. But it is, uh, empathy is really the word of, of trying to put yourself in someone else's position and see things from their point of view. What, what would I do? Which is also what the viewer is thinking. Yes, right? I, but I think there's a strategic thing as an actor as well, as you're always looking for space. You're always looking for, if the character is weak, you're looking for points at which he's strong. And you're looking for a spectrum of weakness. You're looking at like how weak is he? Is he the same weakness all the way along? You know, if if he is, you know, remarkably uh, insensitive, where is where can he be sensitive? I was really struck by Charles's shots of my hands, like holding mm. the cigar mm. and the delicacy. And holding on to the um, in the bedroom scene, mm. holding on to the drawer. Yeah. And, and, things, and were you thinking, I'll give him that cutaway? I was aware that he was t doing lots of uh, strange angles. <laughs> I was aware that, you know, he was choosing... Uh, Charles does a lot of shots, and I was aware, well, what, there's nothing else to shoot. Is uh, and I was aware that some things that... And I, I'm, I'm just an actor who never wants to look at the monitor or anything, right. so... But I'm, I know what lens is on, but I'm just never quite sure what it's shooting. Uh, but I, I think, yeah, the, the best way to put it is, that I think in whatever part I'm playing is I'm looking for space, the space that isn't occupied, or it, 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 what's the worst thing he does, and then try and work out a spectrum from that, really. And Charles, just talk about that. So are you, um, you're just watching the actors all the time, seeing what they're doing? Yeah, well, it starts in rehearsal, really, when you're in a drafty room in King's Cross and you're trying to get scenes to work. And, especially in episode three, where there's really a, a one-act play at the beginning of episode three between two characters, these two. And it's quite extraordinary, a piece of writing, which may well not work. And I've no idea whether it works or not, but, but it's, it's oh, two it does. people... Yeah. <laughs> now I've seen it, it does. Two, yeah. two people in the room. Yeah. And it was very difficult to, to make work in the, in the rehearsal room because we don't know what we're doing and, and you fail again and again in the rehearsal room, which is what it's meant for. Um, but every time they're doing something, they do something interesting with their bodies, and I make a note, and then I just see if that's going to happen again on set in three weeks' time. And then on set, they're doing things, often they're doing things completely by the by between takes, and they're, they're both very, very different actors, and she will start gabbing after the take, have, have, a, have a cigarette in costume, you know, uh, talking Shout to everyone. To Toby's the quietest actor I've ever worked with. It's quite incredible. He, I don't know, you know. On set, he is. <laughs> I'm not sure. I, 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 I never socialise. I don't know what goes on in the bar, but, but on no, set. No, I'm not on set. On set he, no, he, he, the odd he, comedy trip. He, well, once, we, once there was a technical delay in which we were tr treated to 
a series of drunken policeman impressions by yeah. <laughs> which were that was crucial for my performance. Was it? Do you want to do? One, can you do one now? Absolutely not. No. No. But it, but it I don't spirit, really know what they're the talking about. The spirit of Frank Randall, really, rather than anyone else. I think it was uh, really uh, wonderful. But in general, he kind of powers down all, all this chaos going around, and this ladder's just going over his head like this, and he's just sitting there, no idea what's going on. But he's just conserving his energy, which is very important for an actor. A lot of actors burn their energy between takes, and he's always ready, and he's always alert. And he, you know, I, I don't know what he's thinking about at the time, whether it's shopping list or the part, but it, it, you know, for him it works. And, but that thing of the, um, in the bedroom yeah. scene, the hand on the, was that, was that no, something he directed? That. He just he did, did it, that. and you yeah. thought, I'll have that? Yeah, because yeah. you've always got a camera yeah. ready to get it, and you'll either tilt down, or it's, there's a camera that's there available. And I know you, this is excruciating for you because it's instinctive, but was that a conscious decision to do that? No, I, I mean, I, th I have certain ideas about... Uh, it's almost so pretentious talking about acting. It just never sounds good. I mean, I, anyway, I'll say it. But, <laughs> but you have a, you're aware uh, physically of when the character is unbalanced. And, you know, sometimes people need to hold on to something when they're... Uh, and and I, I think... Well, I don't think of that consciously before, and I, I realised after a rehearsal, oh, that's quite, inter that, that's quite an interesting feeling, just holding on to that. I might just hold on to, hold on to that. But it's so vague. I don't know why I, I do it, but it's a sort of balance about characters, because it's very hard in filming to sustain, isn't it? You, get, you do the rehearsal, you do it once like that, and then you hope that you're going to be able to sustain it for the hour you're on that that little scene, you know. So you're looking for sort of mnemonics, physical mnemonics, for what it might make you feel to be able to do it, to do it again. I mean, I've never really talked about it, I won't talk about it again because it's not making, but it's kind of, that, that's what I suppose what that's yeah. about. And Vicky, she, Winnie, there's a lot of, a huge amount of backstory that is just hinted at in a few lines in that first episode, uh, you're like father and son, um, yeah. he didn't have a father, he, to, how much do you construct the backstory in your head? Not so much that it consumes what's going on now because it's actually quite a quick period of time. And also we don't really, we, we sort of touch on it, but it's not something that defines her. We, she is where she is and, and Winnie's very sort of like, she lives for the moment. So as much as it is a part of her past, you know, she's, she's, she's just happy that she's finally got to a stage in her life where she can protect her family. and. Mm. I think she probably wants to put that aside rather than keep bringing that up because, you know, that's a trauma that's something that she wants to put, put aside, I would have thought. But she also, we also made a conscious decision not to go with the butcher's boy. And yeah. um, Verloc walked into the boarding house that she and her mother ran in Pimlico and that was her new beginning. And she, she constantly makes this statement that, you know, it's better to just bury your head in the sand. Mm. That's how she lives her life because some things are... Better left unsaid, and what is that? I can't remember. There, there is a lot of things. Don't look into things too deeply. We did have, we did write flashbacks originally, like somewhere in one, yeah. of, one of the mm. second or third draft of the script, but that yeah. doesn't really go with what we're trying to achieve, which is mm. that it's yeah. always the forward momentum of, of the pieces. And it was sort of flashbacks of how Stevie's father treated him, mm. and, and then and then um, seeing Winnie's interventions and stuff, um, which you know, I think is there in the present without it. And I, nobody really likes flashbacks anyway, so. <laughs> no. And, and t Tony has um, said a couple of times that he thinks of it as a thriller. 
Um, as actors do, or director, do, the genre you're in, particularly the actors, does it matter? Do you think I'm in a thriller, I'm in a comedy? I, well, I, I was, one of my favourite quotes, I, you realise that you know, the important quotes because they stick with you, you know. There's a great John Gielgud quote, which is, um, style is knowing what, play, knowing what play you're in. <laughs> and, and, uh, and in a way, I think that what happens between actors without ever consciously saying it is you realise what kind of show you're in by watching how people are, what, what range they're using in, in the emotion, in emotional life. And it's tacit. You know, the director sort of goes, I think maybe let's try one less than that, let's try one more than that. But actors are looking at each other and go, oh, I see, we're playing it on this, in this sort of broad range of demonstrated behaviour. And I think, that, so is it a thriller? I think we're all aware that there's a lot of stuff that we're not allowed to say and the, and the, the story is moving very fast. That's a thriller, you know. <laughs> you know, that people are withholding stuff and, and the, the, the narrative is moving very fast. And, and do you, is pace something you, you just leave to the director or do you as actors have to think about the pace of a... Because as Tony said and Charles, it is, it's a pacey drama, this. Yeah, I think because we did a lot of rehearsals, I think that didn't affect me in filming. So it wasn't really something I was thinking of you know, or oh, we need to pick up the pace because also it's such a drastic change for Winnie. Mm. Um, I would leave that with Charles. But that quite, you know, Tony um, started in theatre and I saw many of his early plays, Welcome Home, The Lucky Ones, all mm. those. But um, in theatre, as you know, the, the director just says you've got to pick up the pace, even in the second half, like a football manager. I don't know why I came up that metaphor, but um, it's past eight. <laughs> um, the, um, they were... Um, they will say, you've got to pick up the pace. We've got to move the ball faster, is what um, Roy Hodgson said at the halftime in England-Wales. But in, it, it's odd on screen because you, you're constructing it afterwards. But how do you control the pace of a... I mean, how do you make a thriller pacey when you're directing it? I try to make everything pacey, really. It's, it's, you know, I love having a lot of scenes because mm. that has an inherent dynamic and momentum. But within a scene, you're always very conscious about people being slow. Mm. And you know you have to cut stuff out, so you're trying to get as much in as possible that's good. And it's, yeah, it's very present there. So, as it, so the same way in theatre, you would say you've got to pick it up in this scene? Well, I know how long a scene should be before right. we shoot it. Right. And, and right. you know, because everything's timed, so mm. before you even start rolling, you know how long the script is reading. It doesn't really match accurately to a cut, but, but at least you've got ideas of how long that scene should be, two minutes it was read in a read-through. And uh, so you've got that to aim for, and you know what you want to do visually with the camera, what kind of movement you want the actors to do. But irrespective of that, you just want the scenes to flow as swiftly as possible, unless, as I say, in something like episode three, when suddenly things change dramatically, and you mm. want silence, and you want stillness. But so I, if Toby suddenly feels instinctively that he wants a 45-second pause in a scene, you would just... You can have it, but it won't be in the show. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's what so I mean. Really I, 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 think, I, think, I think Pace, I, I think it's so much about the cut. I mean, it's yeah. so much about the cut. Although as an actor, you're aware, well, track's being laid. <laughs> yeah, I'll yeah. be needing to walk with the camera. Except you know? in theatre it isn't, because you're controlling... Oh, yeah, theatre's yeah. totally different. You're, yeah. you, that's the great joy of yeah. theatre, is you're in control of the, of the pace. But... Mm. There's nothing you can do in, mm. in TV or film, you know. It never felt to me, though, that we was rushed. No, you know, no. It was, We did have long scenes yeah. that we had all the well, time. Well, this epic break. scene in yeah, ep exactly. episode three, mm. where I think we all talked all the time, like, 
God, this is so long, you know, <laughs> for, a, for a TV scene, it's yeah. unbelievable. You know? But yeah. again, the fact that you started in theatre, you would be less frightened of that than some, no, I really, think that, than screenwriters. No, I was really looking forward to that, because it was actually, you know, you talked about the pace and the full mm. momentum of everything. To do the, the sort of, basically, it's a two-hander between, you know, that mm. it goes on for quite, really quite a long time. It was like going back to the theatre. Mm. Um, and then, you know, we were sort of worried about whether it had a sort of an overall arc. Um, because it's it's difficult to talk about because you don't want to be a, you don't want mm. to be a spoiler. But but you know what I'll say is yeah it, it was great because it reminded me of writing for the mm. stage. Um, we'll take a couple of questions before we've got we've got an important engagement at some <laughs> to get to. Um, but who 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 would we got microphones out there? Yes, uh, gentleman there, uh, Tim Oglethorpe. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, it's a question. Well, actually, one question for Vicky and one question quickly for Toby as well. How important, Vicky, was it to do something? like this, which is in pretty sharp contrast to Line of Duty, having made such an impact in that show? Um, it's never a tick in the box, you know, oh, she's never done period drama, she's never done this, but, you know, when this was presented to me, it was like the audition of a lifetime. So you do want to go in there, and I remember saying to Charles, like, oh, what notes have you got? And he said, please just do it your way. So the minute you're given that chance to sort of try it the way you want it, and then you get the job, you go, well, at least he's taking me on because he, you know, I'm not typical period drama. And then obviously working with Tony and Toby and my mate Steve, and you know, it was a bit of a dream come true for me. And then quickly for Toby, um, the scenes where your character's being mean to, to Stevie, I know it's only acting, but how difficult were they to do? They're very emotive and very painful mm. to watch in some ways. Mm. I know it sounds really glib, but they're not difficult at all to do. <laughs> I, I, and I don't mean because they're not nice. They are, they're not meant to be nice, but they're, they're not meant to be easy to watch. But it's a great privilege of acting. That's what putting yourself in someone else and exploring something from someone else. What if, what if you were able to do this? What if you were able to do it? What would be the most effective way of doing it? That's kind of an area that I'm really, you know, that's what I really am interested in my job is putting myself in other people's shoes and exploring that. And if Charles found it hard to look at or someone else found it hard to look at, that, that's great. That's, that's exactly right. And I really enjoy that part, part of my job, you know, like exploring that, those areas that I don't get to explore in my life. And Tim is a top cultural and football journalist, so any score in either of the games, are you following that? <laughs> Yeah, let me know. Yeah. Um, we mentioned the parallels at the top. I was just remembering um, the uh, Unabomber, um, Ted Kershinsky. Mm. He, um, he's he, he, yeah, he, a professor. Yeah, yeah. He, yeah. But he was obsessed yeah. with Conrad, and he even used yes, the name Conrad when he yeah. checked into various hotels. And then the book became a bestseller after 9-11. Yeah. So it's extraordinary, that it's history in that way. Uh, yeah, there's a weird fact as well about the professor, which is um, it was the connection between the professor and the Daleks. Mm. Because um, in the book, he also does it, Comrade also does it in um, Heart of Darkness. The professor um, talks about the weak and how they, uh, he says, exterminate, exterminate, at the end of the book, um, when he's when he sort of asked upon. And, um, and then in the Kurtz is saying the same thing in Heart, Heart of Darkness. So um, that's a little known fact for the Daleks and, and Comrade. A Comrade, that's, <laughs> wow, on, on that bombshell. Um, who, um, anyone over there on that side? Right, sorry. I, I, like you, I haven't read this book for yonks, uh, absolute yonks, uh, other Conrad books more recently. And Conrad is, is kind of a god to modern writers, uh, that have any sense anyway, because he is a god as a writer. But he was also a bit of a, 
he was kind of like conservative and the way he regarded these characters would have been with pretty much with contempt I think and that's the point of view and a normal point of view is not to have I mean um, Winnie and Stevie are victims but Verlog is okay he's a villain or he's just struggling with his life but he's also a blithered idiot and there is no normal normally you have a figure in the front if it's Piper in Orange is the New Black you have somebody that is reasonably rational to sort of look at the rest of the story and reflect the rest of the story who's like the central character and you created these wonderful believable characters that had me gripped and hypnotized and stuff I just wondered how strange it was for all of you having a a show in which there is no lead character as such with an object, objective vision of reality and stuff. I don't know if that makes sense. It's rambling. Well, you, you mentioned Tony POV that in the novel it's spread, but it sort yeah. of is on screen, the, isn't it? Yeah, I, I mean, I mean to be honest, I mean there's a thing, the thing about Conrad and that this book, the besetting tone of it is irony, which isn't very helpful to a dramatist because in the end, for a dramatist, you want you want to be rooting for, at one stage, be rooting for everybody. So it's that's really why it's important that we. That, that Verloc, if you, you, you have a sense of a sympathetic sense of his entrapment and you create that. And obviously Toby was talking about finding the space for, for an audience to fill that. I think that, you know, in the book, um, I think Keith Harriman, uh, our comrade scholar, was talking about um, scorn and pity. There's a lot of scorn in the book and not enough, not enough pity. And I think that in the end, you know, you can't, you can't have a drama where you're where the authorial voice in the narrative in the book is is quite scornful. Although Conrad, you have to invest sorry, in everybody. Conrad's tone is interesting, though, isn't it? Because he was writing in his second language, so we don't. I, I think it's possibly more complicated than. Or is his third language? Third, yeah. In French. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I, th I think it's partly a social satire, and as our Conrad consultant said to me on our first meeting, it's a very funny book. And I said, you're not getting any humour in this one, because, <laughs> because we had to make a choice, and, and you can't produce a series of caricatures or almost caricatures of very corpulent men sitting in political office at the same time as wanting to be fully invested emotionally with people. And I think Tony took the right approach was to make a very emotional drama. And if there are any students out there, the influence of Conrad on popular culture, Daleks and Apocalypse Now are both... <laughs> yeah. um, yes. Because Apocalypse Now yeah. is um, Heart of Darkness, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the horror, the horror. Um, so this is for you, Vicky. Um, you've played like a double agent in Line of Duty. What was it like not actually doing any of the tricksy kind of stuff? And how does it kind of compare in like terms of thriller to something like Line of Duty where you just don't know what's going to happen? Um, I think the corset was more painful than a massive machine gun. <laughs> <laughs> I did like loosen it every now and then. Um, yeah, they don't really compare. Uh, they're quite... I was talking about it earlier, actually, and just saying, you know, majority of the characters that I play are always strong women and you know I love to play strong women because there's a depth in there and, and actually with Winnie that's a, a bit of a grower do you know what I mean whereas Kate is very sort of in your face very quickly um, you establish that, that she's that sort of character so to me I, I you know I completely separate the two and you know it was a unique job for me it was I don't know fight all I did was try and find the truth and that's all I ever sort of know to do really and Charles made made it really clear, just do your thing. And it's a period drama, but don't play the period drama role, you know, um, which was the best note it could have given me, because it's very easy to sort of feel like I need to... And I, I didn't, I just went and did my thing. And unlike Line of Duty, it's, it's very hard to have a sequel, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For reasons yeah. we won't give away. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, spoiler alert, it's quite tricky. 
Um, that would be very different. We'll uh, leave it there for various <laughs> reasons. Um, and um, uh, thank you very much to all of our panel. And um, I would really recommend two and three as well.